This past weekend, high school seniors officially graduated, closing one chapter of their lives and beginning a whole new journey in life. And typically when we have life-changing events like rites of passage or these threshold moments, whatever you want to call them, we make an effort to be enfleshed, to be present in person. Now this year, schools and families went to great lengths to respect the boundaries imposed upon us by the coronavirus while still making graduation a special time. There were virtual ceremonies and drive-through photo opportunities and masked graduation parties because it's important to be enfleshed in significant moments. Now, not all things are like that. Like, it's perfectly acceptable to uh, pick up your takeout when you pull up to send a text message, right? Uh, it's completely normal to um, to receive a, uh, an email from Amazon saying that your package is shipped. Like, you don't need someone to show up at your house to tell you that. That would actually be kind of creepy. But if you're going to plan a wedding proposal, you kind of want to be there in person. Um, if you don't think so, we better have a deep conversation. The most important things in life are almost always better in person, in fleshed. And the Bible is full of examples of this, but consider just these three uh, to drive the point home. So when the triune God decided to create, he created the mountains and the rivers and the plants and animals, but he created images of himself, and that's us, human beings. We are in fleshed icons. His most important word to creation is you and me, enfleshed living beings created to mirror his love and creativity and wisdom, both to each other and out to the world. And when God decided to initiate his kingdom on earth and to communicate the gospel, he didn't send a text or an email or even a magical parchment paper that flew from heaven. He became enfleshed as a human being, as Jesus the Christ himself. He dwelt among us, and he came to personally propose to his bride. And so, what is his master plan? Once again, it has to do with flesh. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells his followers and who empowers us to be his agents of the gospel in the world. So, you've heard the sermon text read just moments ago, and that is coming right after what we looked at last week. In that story last week, we, we read about how there was a council in Jerusalem, and they were debating whether or not Gentile Christians had to first become Jewish, had to become circumcised, in order to be part of the family of God. And at this council, they decided that, no, that isn't necessary. And, uh, and, and well, at the same time, they made concessions so that Gentiles would follow certain laws, not as a requirement to follow Jesus, but as a way to not deeply offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so that way, Jews and Gentile Christians could all share table fellowship and worship and be in each other's homes without any kind of animosity uh, or, or fear of, of taboo or anything like that. Now, the council from Jerusalem could have just sent a letter with some random person, carried it up to Antioch, and brought the good news, and it probably would have been quite effective. But instead, it went with an entourage of human beings who represented different backgrounds and positions. The message on that piece of paper, the message of the council in Jerusalem, was enfleshed. Its concepts and decrees were on display in the human lives who actually carried the letter. Now, there was great rejoicing and unification in the church in Antioch. Jesus transcends the cultural and ethnic barriers between people, and his gospel was enfleshed by that church. But it wasn't utopia. 
Christian community is always hard work. And in verses 36 through 41, we see how an enfleshed gospel has inherent risks. Because let's face it, getting along is pretty hard when I keep tripping over my own sin and fear and anger and insecurities. The scene sets off with great intentions. Paul suggests that he and Barnabas return to the churches that they planted in their first missionary journey. You could read about that in chapters 13 and 14. And he undoubtedly wants to encourage them. And he probably wants to bring them this good news from the council in Jerusalem because they're all Gentile churches. And so he wants to tell them there's nothing that hinders you from coming to Christ, just, just repentance and trust in him. It's a great idea, but there is a problem. Barnabas wants to bring this guy named John Mark, but Paul doesn't want to. See, oftentimes at this point, commentators want to jump to the fact that God uses this conflict to create two missionary journeys, and therefore people heard the gospel, so it's actually a good thing that there's conflict. Or they point to the fact that, ah, this isn't a big deal because later on in the scriptures we read that Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they all make peace and seem to get along uh, fine together. But I really want to resist the urge to jump too quickly to redemption. After all, if Luke wanted us to jump to the outcomes, he could have easily omitted this embarrassing scene from early church history altogether. But he hasn't. And make no mistake, in both ancient culture and in our own day and age, it is an embarrassing, unfavorable, unfortunate moment in the, light of, uh, in the life of the church. So why does he include it then in the book of Acts? I believe that Luke wants to warn us. And he wants to warn us about what not to do. So let's look at the problem a little bit. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark were on mission together. Now, somewhere early in that trip, John Mark left their company. And some speculate that he was homesick. Some say he was just soft. He was young and, and you know, missing home. But whatever the reason, we know that it was not a justifiable reason. Like it wasn't sickness. It wasn't injury or anything like that. Paul describes the, the departure of John Mark as apostanta, which is Greek for rebellion, departure, abandonment. It's, from the, it's got the same root from the word that we get apostasy. Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit more. Paul and Barnabas want to return to some of the same places where they traveled the first time. Do you remember what happened on that first journey? They got death threats. Paul was stoned and left for dead in one of these towns. And so when they think about going back to these same places, Paul wants to know that he can trust his traveling companions. I think that's legitimate. In life, we need to know that we can trust the people who are with us. If you've ever had someone close to you break your trust, you know that it's a traumatic event, right? It's not just a cognitive event. And sometimes it's so traumatic that you don't remember the details, but you just know that you have a hard time trusting people. Or maybe you have a hard time trusting people who remind you of the one who hurt you. So from that perspective, we can understand where Paul is coming from. But let's consider Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but everyone just calls him by this nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And in every encounter uh, we have with Barnabas in the book of Acts, it seems that he lives up to this nickname. Like he's encouraging the church by giving of his wealth. 
and he's always um, uh, taking huge risks on people, like like when he found Paul, who was this young, hot-headed Pharisee. Barnabas used his clout with the apostles and took Paul under his wing and vouched for him like a aged Jedi master, taking a young, a young Padawan under his arm. Barnabas fostered Paul in the faith. He gave him his first break. And so there's this dynamic here in which Paul sort of owes Barnabas some loyalty and respect. While at the same time in the narrative, Paul is starting to come into his own. So when they left on the first missionary journey, Barnabas is clearly the elder and the leader. He was kind of in charge. But by the time we get to this story, Paul has come into his own. He's a fully-fledged apostle of Jesus, and he's surpassing Barnabas in his teaching ministry. Now, to complicate matters, Mark is the younger cousin of Barnabas. So where Paul sees failure, Barnabas sees the possibility for redemption and second chances. And it happens that Barnabas is in this impossible situation. He either has to part with Paul, his friend and protege, or he has to part with his blood relative, a very serious cultural taboo in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, the toughest conflicts are usually between people or groups who are both pretty right in their arguments, right? Paul was right. He needed a companion he could trust. And Barnabas was right. You know, he's willing to give a second chance. He was willing to advocate for Mark, just like he had once advocated for Paul. Paul wanted someone more mature for this perilous journey ahead. That makes total sense to me. But Barnabas saw the perilous journey as a context to help Mark find maturity, and that makes sense to me too. Sadly, the result was a sharp, painful, emotionally charged disagreement. The two men go their separate ways, and they do so apparently in a fit of anger and frustration. The gospel in human flesh is always going to be a liability, but it can also be transformative. Now, let's imagine a different scenario in which Paul and Barnabas take their enfleshment seriously. And when I say flesh, I'm not just talking about like the physical body. I'm talking about social, mental, and emotional and cultural side of human beings. What if Paul was able to be self-aware enough to know his expectations and to say them out loud? Hey, Barnabas, knowing what dangers we faced last time, I really want to take a team of mature, tested disciples. Chances are we're going to face some of the same dangerous situations. To which Barnabas might have replied, I hear what you're saying, brother, but my cousin Mark has come a long way since the last time. You know, he feels really bad about leaving us behind, and I know he wants to prove his worth. <laughs> Don't forget, by the way, that not many apostles wanted to take a chance on you when you were young and hot-headed. You know, a journey like this might be just the experience John Mark needs to really encounter the power and provision of Jesus. And Paul might say, I hear what you're saying, and I believe in your logic. But brother, when Mark left us, it hurt me deep. And I'm still wrestling with those feelings. And to be honest, when I think of the possibility of Mark leaving us again, I, I can't catch my breath. I, I, I tense up in my body. And I don't think I'm strong enough to have him on the team and still be at my best. Now, chances are that Paul and Barnabas may have come to the same conclusion about parting ways. But man, 
it would have been a lot more civil. And it could have actually increased their intimacy and understanding if they had just taken their enfleshment, their humanness, seriously. Is there a conflict with someone in your life right now? Maybe you're so focused on the disagreement or the disagreeability of the other person that you haven't considered being honest with your own thoughts and attitudes, your past trauma, or your feelings. I would encourage you, if you have the time, to pause the video or podcast and consider what it might mean um, to take your full humanity seriously, to take the humanity of others in the midst of conflict seriously. So as the story continues, Paul and Silas have gone one direction, Barnabas and Mark another. And Luke sticks with Paul and Silas in the narrative. So they're going to these churches and they take an overland route. They're visiting churches, they're strengthening them, and they're likely teaching them and encouraging them, plus carrying the news of the Jerusalem Council that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. It's really good news all around. And when he gets to Lystra, remember, that's the place where the locals confused him and Barnabas with Zeus and Hermes. And that's the one where they stoned him and left him for dead. So he's back in the same town and he meets up with a young disciple named Timothy. Now, we know from other books of the Bible that Timothy's mother was named Lois and his grandmother was named Eunice. And both of these strong women were disciples of Jesus. We also know that Timothy would become an important leader in the early church. But in this chapter, we're given just three bits of information. We're given the info that he's a follower of Jesus. We learn about his background a little bit and that his mother was Jewish and his father was a Greek. And we learn that Timothy had a good reputation, that people spoke well of him in the surrounding towns. I believe that Timothy is a prime example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, an enfleshment of the gospel. But before I can get there, I have to clear up a detail that might seem confusing to you at first read. It says rather casually, actually, that Paul wanted to take Timothy with him on his journey, and so he had him circumcised, like, that's just what you do. And it's like, wait a minute, what is going on? Wasn't Paul literally carrying around with him either the letter or the news of the letter that the Jerusalem council specifically said, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus? Well, that's absolutely true. Here's what's going on in a brief synopsis. Timothy is already a full-fledged believer. Not being circumcised isn't holding him back at all from being part of the church or from following Jesus. And here are two details that shed some light on the situation. First, Timothy is going on a missionary journey with Paul. And when Paul goes to a new town, where does he go? Or at least where does he go first? He always goes to the synagogue, and he does this because he knows he can find common ground there. He can assume that the people in the synagogue are knowledgeable about the scriptures, and so he can easily show how Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Now, what do you find in synagogues? Well, in these diaspora towns, you find Jewish people who have suffered a lot for being Jewish in pagan lands. Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. But if he enters into these Jewish synagogues as an uncircumcised teacher of Scripture, 
Well, you may have well, you might as well put stoppers in the ears of those Jews because they would reject him and his message outright. And so Timothy is circumcised not for his own sake, but for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. Second, Timothy was of Jewish heritage. It was on his mother's side. And in the ancient world, it was the mother's side in Jewish communities that determined the family lineage. And so Timothy was showing in his body, he was showing with his body that he was not rejecting the people of God. Far from it. He was saying with his whole body that Jesus is from the Jews and for the world. But notice that there is a different disciple of Paul's named Titus. This is in Galatians. And Titus was a 100% Gentile. And sometimes he came under um, uh, accusation from Jewish Christians that he wasn't truly Jewish or wasn't truly a believer. And Paul fought for him and fought for him. And Titus never got circumcised because Titus wasn't from the Jewish line. And so his bold, his body told the story of how Jesus and the gospel embraces the Gentile completely. Now, back to the meat of the story. In the ancient world, Timothy was a mulatto. He was half Greek and half Jewish. So in negative terms, he would always be a half accepted person never fully embraced by the Jews, never fully embraced by the pagans. He was a man born into the tension of differing identities. But in a very positive sense, Timothy embodied what it is to be a Christian in the world, but not of it. Born here on the earth, but a citizen of the kingdom of God. Sinful, but yet redeemed. And Paul was a man who knew this well. Born a Roman citizen, and yet a Jew, fluent in Greek and in Hebrew, and Paul saw in Timothy someone who could flow in and out of different communities that they would visit. He could relate to Jews, and he could relate to Greeks. He was a living, enfleshed example of the gospel, because even if the world held him with suspicion and a certain level of inferiority, Timothy was a new creation in Christ. That he was an agent of the Lord was a physical and social statement of defiance to the world that would so easily seek to pick away at our sense of worth and value. As we close, I would encourage you to personalize this idea of the gospel enfleshed in you. I would get a journal or a piece of paper if you're a, you have a spreadsheet or something that you type into, whatever it is, but jot down some ideas. And, and here's where I would start. Where are you from? What is your geographical history, if you've moved around? How have the places you've lived shaped you in the way that you see yourself and see the world? What's your education? Maybe it's formal education, on the job training, um, it, it, maybe you've been educated through the trades. What is your, what is your, what's educated you over time? How has your body shaped you? You know, a lot of us, I don't know about every culture, but I know in the West, a lot of us feel great shame about our bodies. Pay attention to that and then consider, how has my body served me well? What am I thankful for in terms of my body? How have I treated my body as a gift from God over these last years? And if you're 
like me, somewhat appalled at how hard you've been on your body. How might I change that? I think that's a significant question for us to ask. Here's another one. How have I been redeemed? From what things or ways of being has Jesus forgiven you? Now, you could really go get going on this. You could list your experiences, your highs and lows. But in the end, I want you to, to try and formulate an answer to this question. How is Jesus uniquely manifest in you? There's only one you. Only you can roll in the circles that you roll in like you do. Only you have been gifted your body. Only you have been gifted your past. Only you have been gifted your future. How might you reflect the gospel of Jesus in all the arenas of your life? Could you pray with me? Living God, thank you for enfleshing yourself to show us your love through Jesus the Christ, both in simply becoming one of us to uh, relate to us, but also in giving your very life for us on the cross. Thank you for breaking the back of death, for defeating the grave and, and being resurrected to new life, that we could have hope in new creation and new life. And thank you that because the God of the universe became enfleshed, it gives so much importance to us who are enfleshed. Lord, forgive us for the way that we, we see ourselves with shame and for shaming other people because of their flesh, who they are, where they come from, what they look like. Oh Lord, help us to see how you've uniquely made each of us your agent, empowered and uniquely gifted and uniquely experienced to be right where we are for such a time as this. Bless you, Lord. Amen.